The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. When cops fired wildly at a crowd of thousands, injuring over 60 strikers and bystanders, sending two to their deaths, the bosses of the Citizens Alliance were apparently convinced that this was a winning strategy. After all, they thought, how many workers would continue to picket the streets of Minneapolis knowing that the cops showed no mercy? But local 574's newspaper, The Organizer, declared the contrary. Quote, you thought you could shoot local 574 into oblivion, but you only succeeded in making 574 a battle cry on the lips of every self-respecting working man and working woman in Minneapolis, end quote. Seething with anger, 15,000 workers and sympathizers crowded around the strike headquarters on the night of Bloody Friday. At the rally, President Bill Brown bellowed, We must either take off our hats and bow to Bloody Johannes, or take off our coats and smash him. Let Bloody Johannes and that acrobat Bainbridge explain this murderous attack away if they can. We used no violence. We were unarmed. We call on Governor Olson to remove Bainbridge and Bloody Johannes. If necessary, we will call a general transportation strike, and not a wheel in Minneapolis will move. And if that doesn't do, we'll get the whole town out. End quote. Emery Nelson of the Central Labor Union and Teamsters Milk Drivers Union compared the mayor and the chief to Adolf Hitler, alluding to a characteristic aspect of fascism, the destruction of the German and Italian labor movements. In the days after, Local 574 received donations from other unions, volunteers from farmer labor ward clubs, and 50 women added to the ranks of the auxiliary. The barbers union set up a barber shop for free at the headquarters. Cab drivers and even laundry workers walked out and joined the strike. Ray Dunn visited the unemployed workers organization, over a dozen of whom had been among those shot, including John Belor. He reiterated to them the argument of necessary solidarity. Both employed and unemployed workers belonged to the same struggle. Convinced by Dunn's message, 6,000 of the unemployed signed up to join the strike, forming their own committees to coordinate with Local 574. Indeed, until now, the strike had mostly concerned the city's truck drivers and warehouse workers. As militant as the early days of the strike had been, journalist Charles Rumford Walker noted that, for the most part, city affairs went on as usual. Residents gathered in mass sings and attended movie theaters to see the latest Shirley Temple film. But, Walker wrote, quote, if the atmosphere of Minneapolis was normal on the day of the battle, 24 hours later, it was not. It is as if a high voltage of electricity had been discharged into the social organism. Slowly as the news spread was retold, embroidered, discussed, a new alignment of class forces appeared in the city. It proved an invisible but infinitely potent mobilization of class forces. Above all, it proved, even to the doubting, that a class alignment and a class battle did exist. 
in a word, coupled with the events that followed, it made Minneapolis people take sides, either actively or in their hearts. End quote. For Monday, July 23rd, Local 574 had asked all transportation unions to join a one-day strike. They did not call for a citywide general strike, wary of provoking conservative factions within the labor movement, as well as Governor Olson, who they knew was anxious to intervene as soon as possible. Their limited industry-wide strike succeeded. Apparently, the bus drivers' union had refused to transport the National Guard that day. Laundry workers, in the middle of their own fight, broke off negotiations, declaring, Not a wheel shall be turned, not a shirt shall be ironed, not a garment shall be cleaned, until the mayor and police chief were removed. But also on July 23rd, as detailed in the last episode, Henry B. Ness died. Blood transfusions had failed to save him. His funeral was the following day, Tuesday, July 24th. The funeral parlor was across the street from May's strike headquarters at 1900 Chicago Avenue. Following the family service, 20,000 marchers escorted his body to the July strike headquarters on 8th Street. The procession tied up traffic for hours, cruising pickets controlling the streets without a cop in sight. At the headquarters, a black flag was raised in memoriam for the duration of the strike. A stage was built for the eulogies. Bill Brown, a longtime friend of Ness's, tried to speak but failed to deliver any words through his tears. Lawyer Albert Goldman rose before the audience of thousands, his eulogy printed in the organizer the following day. He said, quote, In my years of experience defending workers caught in the clutches of capitalist class justice, I had come to know well the brutality of police officers against pickets and workers' demonstrations. Now, from an examination of the available evidence, I am convinced that if ever anyone was guilty of malicious, premeditated murder, an attempt to murder, it was the police who fired at the pickets last Friday and killed Henry B. Ness and wounded about 50 other workers. When a dumb cop shoots unarmed pickets, the pickets have a right to defend themselves, but the ones to blame are those who instructed the police, Johannes, Mayor Bainbridge, and the bosses behind them. All are equally guilty of murdering Henry B. Ness. When the police are instructed to shoot workers, they are not told to make distinctions between races, nationalities, colors, creeds, or political persuasions. They are told to shoot militant workers of any nationality, workers, whether Democrats, farmer laborites, socialists, or communists. Thus, the bosses, who try to create division in the ranks of the workers, make no distinction when they want their police to shoot the workers. The life of our murdered brother typifies the lives of all workers. The social system gave him no chance. At an early age, he was forced to work to earn a living and to make profits for his employer. Together with other workers, he was sent to kill or to be killed in the World War. What for? For freedom? No. For the sake of profits in imperialist markets for the bosses. Mark these words. There is only one war, one struggle in which a worker has a real interest. That is the struggle of labor against capital. In 1929 came the terrible depression and Ness learned what freedom the war had won. For him and millions of others, they had won the freedom to starve and the freedom to be shot down while exercising the right of peaceful picketing. How long will the working masses tolerate a social system which gives to over 12 million unemployed and their families the right to starve in the midst of plenty, 
which gives to millions more the right to be exploited and to receive a miserable wage. The answer has been given by the workers of Toledo, Milwaukee, Birmingham, Frisco, Portland, Seattle, and Minneapolis. The answer is that there are millions of Nesses, workers ready to sacrifice their very lives if need be in the struggle against the exploiters and oppressors. One thing is sure. Workers begin to realize that they must organize and struggle. They must do everything for themselves. The millions of American workers had faith in the New Deal. Now they begin to see that a New Deal can come to them only through their own efforts, their own organization, struggle, and sacrifice. The struggle against oppression is no easy task. On the side of the bosses are the police, the army, the courts. The mayor of Minneapolis does not consider the lives of strikers worth protecting. The only thing of importance to him is the protection of the boss's property, the boss's right to keep workers enslaved at low wages and in misery. What is the essence of this business of preserving law and order? If a man is on the side of the workers, he will grant them the right to picket and stop trucks driven by scabs. I call that law and order. No trucks to be driven except by union men. That is law and order. But if a man is on the boss's side, he wants trucks to be driven by scabs without interference of pickets, breaking the strike. That is what Bainbridge and Johannes and the bosses mean by preserving law and order. The workers have numbers in the fighting spirit of Henry B. Ness. Labor is on the march, a new militant spirit in its breast. If we have to die, it shall not be with heads bowed and knees bent, but fighting for freedom in a new world. We shall die if we must, as did our beloved brother, Henry Ness. If the workers will be filled with such a spirit, they will not have to die. They will live and conquer the forces of exploitation, of reaction, of murder. Brothers, sisters, as we leave this demonstration, we must bear in our hearts a fierce resolve to carry on Brother Ness's struggle. We must not fail him. We must avenge his murder. This we shall do if we struggle to win the strike, if we struggle to throw the exploiters from off our backs and to establish a new social order in which the worker may enjoy the fruits of his toil. End quote. Following the orations, the funeral procession recommenced, thousands lining the streets to watch Local 574 march to 12th Street and 1st Avenue North. There, a contingent of strikers returned to the headquarters to resume strike operations, while thousands more continued in hundreds of cars to Crystal Lake Cemetery in North Minneapolis. Ness, a veteran of World War I, was given full military honors by troops from Fort Snelling. All in all, over 40,000, perhaps even 100,000, participated in the events of Monday and Tuesday. Although the death of Henry Ness cast a shadow of sorrow upon the strike, the act of murder made the working class's blood boil. Independent of Local 574, the labor movement launched a massive campaign to demand the resignation or firing of Mayor Bainbridge and bloody Mike Johannes. The strike leaders had no illusion that the campaign would work, but they hoped the pressure would make the bosses wary of advocating another round of police brutality. Within a few days, the campaign launched by labor unions amassed 140,000 signatures. This was enough to pressure the city council to hold hearings and investigate the situation, but even with packed rooms full of heated argumentation, nothing ultimately came of these efforts. It is worth pausing, however, to discuss why Bloody Friday had happened in the first place. 
Why did Minneapolis police officers fire shotguns into a crowd, especially in their backs? How is this possible? The response of the city's ruling class offers a clue. Contrary to condemning the event, they praised it. The Civil and Commerce Association, a close affiliate of the Citizens Alliance I discussed in Episode 2, wrote to Mayor Bainbridge, Our citizens cannot help but admire the bravery of our police force. The Kwanis, a club for the wealthy, wrote to Cochran, the director of the Employers' Advisory Committee, that while we deplore the loss of life, we commend the mayor and the police chief for their determination to maintain the law of the land and protect lives and property. Even several years later, the secretary of the Citizens' Alliance told Charles Rumford Walker that, quote, Nobody likes to see bloodshed, but I tell you, after the police had used their guns on July 20th, we felt that the strike was breaking. Mike Johannes, they call him Bloody Mike, but I don't care. It was a religion with him to keep the streets open. And if Olson and the National Guard troops hadn't come in and interfered, the strike would have been soon over. There are very few men who will stand up in a strike when there is a question of they themselves getting killed. And I say, there are very few of us, in view of what Minneapolis is today, who don't feel the strike would have been better ended that way. End quote. That is, the bosses of Minneapolis had wanted to see more murders by cops. Such quotes help provide the key. The role of the police in the United States is not to protect and serve all members of the community, but instead, their role is to protect and serve capitalism and maintain social order for its benefit. How much work police have to do to maintain capitalism depends on the historical context. Today, it may appear that the primary negative role played by the police is to reinforce racism and white supremacy, as emphasized by Black Lives Matter. This is certainly a primary aspect of their role, but is not the sole focus. The reason this may not be as apparent is because it hasn't needed to be. The American labor movement has not challenged the ruling class to a strong enough degree, as they did in 1934, to warrant cold-blooded executions of workers on strike. There just haven't been enough strikes, and certainly not enough militant ones. But you will see cops at almost every strike, even if they're small. Farrell Dobbs also described the role of the police at length. Quote, Under capitalism, the main police function is to break strikes and to repress other forms of protest against the policies of the ruling class. Any civil usefulness other forms of police activity may have, like controlling traffic and summoning ambulances, is strictly incidental to the primary repressive function. Personal inclinations of individual cops do not alter this basic role of the police. All must comply with ruling class dictates. As a result, police repression becomes one of the most naked forms through which capitalism subordinates human rights to the demands of private property. If the cops sometimes falter in their antisocial tasks, it is simply because they, like the guns they use, are subject to rust when not engaged in the deadly function for which they are primarily trained. No police organization is exactly the same day in and day out. Two essential factors determine its character at a given moment, the social climate in which the cops have been operating and the turnover of personnel within the force. An unseasoned cop may tend to be somewhat considerate of others in the performance of duty, especially while class relations are relatively peaceful. Even in such calm times, however, the necessary accommodation must be made to capitalist demands, including readiness to shoot anyone who tampers with private property. Otherwise, the aspiring cop 
if he's not kicked out of the force, will have little chance of rising beyond a beat in the sticks. By gradually weeding out misfits along these general lines, a police department can keep itself abreast of requirements during a more or less stable period in class relations. Such had been the case with the Minneapolis cops, whose strike-breaking experiences had long been limited to occasional attacks on weak craft unions that were poorly led. Then, in 1934, a sharp turn occurred in the class struggle, and they were found to be less incompetent in carrying out the harsh new tasks imposed upon them by the bosses. To play the required role in the changed alignment of class forces, the department had to be drastically shaken up, and it was. When Johannes first issued riot guns to the cops, a few had declined to take them, and they were immediately suspended from the force. Another handful drew suspensions when they took the guns but refused to use them. Two or three went so far as to join in the shooting, and then, probably appalled by the resultant carnage, turned in their guns and badges. Among those suspended was a captain of police, John Hart. Through this general shakeup, the Minneapolis police force had become transformed into a body of uniformed killers who were ready to shoot strikers upon command. End quote. Following Bloody Friday, many of the workers who escaped fled home and returned to strike headquarters with shotguns, rifles, revolvers, and knives. Given that over 60 people had just been shot, this response was totally understandable. But was it good strategy? In the hectic aftermath, Ray Dunn, Dobbs, and Kelly Postal made what Dobbs later called the most difficult decision in his life. The strikers should remain unarmed, and any guns brought to the headquarters confiscated. Sending strikers out with guns, they determined, would be a tactical mistake. The capitalists and newspapers would have a field day, declaring they were right that Local 574 really was seeking a revolution. Governor Olson and even President Franklin Roosevelt would send in the National Guard immediately, as had occurred in Toledo a few months prior. With violence spreading throughout the city, Local 574 would likely be unable to mobilize broader layers of workers in Minneapolis and across the state. After all, working-class consciousness was just in the process of emerging. Therefore, based on this reasoning, the Central Committee confiscated weapons from cruising squads as they were dispatched. But this disarming was not a dictatorial maneuver by Ray Dunn. Once the decision was made, it had to be defended before the Strike Committee of 100. There was debate, as well as some resistance amongst the rank-and-file workers, but ultimately, the Union agreed on the tactic. Slyly, they published these orders in the organizer, vaguely worded. No workers would be armed, but the police didn't need to know that. In the wake of the massacre, Local 574 retained its militancy, but eased back on how aggressively they defended the turf. Specifically, instead of ramming a truck or shutting down a street, they swarmed it with cruising pickets. This, in turn, necessitated Bloody Mike to help trucks move under police guard. But the more pickets, the more cops needed. He tried to instead move more trucks at once with fewer cops so as to dilute the presence of strikers. But Local 574 simply had the numbers. They just dispatched even more cruising squads. The Union also benefited from the fact that the cops still did not know if strikers were armed. Therefore, Bloody Mike had to add more cops per convoy, reducing the total number of moving trucks. Thus, the strike continued apace, and it cost both the city and the bosses a lot of money. 
The dynamic of the strike swiftly changed by midweek, however. Reverend Francis J. Haas had since joined E.H. Dunnigan as a federal mediator representing the National Labor Relations Board and, in turn, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Haas was the founder of the Catholic Conference on Industrial Problems and director of the Carnegie Peace Union. The Minneapolis Journal described him as, quote, a consistent worker for old-age pensions, for the rights of labor, and a student of crime and criminal injustice, end quote. But as Walker noted, these ace mediators were especially skilled in fooling workers into accepting weak contracts. The difference in this moment, though, was that the workers had the upper hand. Haas and Dunnigan tested a settlement proposal between the union and the bosses prior to going public. The plan called for union elections by employees to choose their representatives, although Local 574 would not be named specifically on the ballot. Local 574 demanded its name be included, but the Citizens Alliance rejected this outright. The plan also proposed that inside workers be included in the 22 market firms, the wholesale grocers and produce companies, but not in the other 144 companies that the Citizens Alliance had included in their united front. The CA showed some acceptance on this front, but 574 pushed for a broader scope that included warehouses and department stores. As for wages, Local 574 had demanded minimums of 55 cents per hour for drivers and 45 cents an hour for helpers, platform men, and inside workers. The Haas Dunnigan plan responded with 52.5 and 42.5 cents per hour, respectively. The CA balked at wage scales entirely. They also wanted to keep their scabs on hire and fire any strikers, quote, found guilty of violence. Recall that many strikers remained tied up in the courts from Bloody Friday, as well as from the days before and after. Having judged the responses, Haas and Dunnigan publicly released their settlement proposal on July 25th, the day following Henry Ness's funeral. The plan called for union elections to be held within three days following the end of the strike. They stuck to the original proposal of declaring all workers in the 22 market firms, except salesmen and office workers, eligible to vote, and only drivers and helpers and platform workers outside those. Haas and Dunnigan accepted Local 574's demand to be named a party on the ballot, and a majority vote for 574 within a firm would entitle the union to collectively bargain for all of the workers, that is, a closed shop. Following the election, there would be immediate negotiations and arbitration for wages and other matters, but the wages had to be a minimum of their original scale, 52.5 and 42.5 cents per hour. Furthermore, all strikers were to be reinstated. The agreement, therefore, favored the strikers, not the Citizens Alliance. Behind closed doors, Governor Floyd B. Olson had given Haas and Dunnigan his blessing. Publicly, Olson had threatened martial law. The National Guard had made a brief appearance immediately after the shootings on Bloody Friday so as to clear the streets, but were withdrawn within an hour. Since then, they had remained stationed at the Minneapolis Armory and the Minnesota State Fairgrounds. A total of 4,000 guardsmen were in the city, and another 2,000 being readied for deployment. The Minneapolis Daily Star had quoted Olson the day after Bloody Friday as stating, quote, I will make the city of Minneapolis as quiet as a Sunday school. The organizer rebuked these threats, explaining what martial law really meant, made more powerful given the role of the state in massacring the workers a few days before, 
but we will cover their perspective on the next episode. Olson had put himself in a bind. 1934 was an election year, and he needed the labor movement's support to win again, as well as the rest of his party. At the same time, his personal ambitions meant his primary concern was winning the seat. This meant not alienating the capitalist class too much, such as the party had done with their radical platform released in May, and that he had since walked back. But he could not appear as the strikebreaker. Thus, he had supported Haas and Dunnigan's plan to circulate the proposal to see if the threat of martial law changed anyone's mind. He had hoped to break the Citizens Alliance's united front by encouraging individual defections. When Haas and Dunnigan released the settlement proposal, Olson publicly endorsed its ratification. He also tied it with a 24-hour ultimatum. If either side rejected the plan, he would proclaim martial law. In the evening, the strike committee of 100 met to discuss the plan, concluding that rejecting the plan would be walking into a trap but they also suspected the bosses would reject it. The strike committee overall considered the settlement unfair, particularly with the violent ultimatum attached to it, but also concluded it was a net gain for the union and a wider labor movement. Wages would increase significantly. Some headway would be made on the inside workers issue, and even better, the market firms where they would be included is where inside workers were present at the highest concentrations. The settlement also allowed for direct union recognition, Every victory so far, this had eluded them, instead having to mediate through the labor boards. Thus, the Committee of 100 recommended to its membership to ratify the proposal with the bet that the Citizens Alliance would reject it, martial law be proclaimed, and the strike continued. But, importantly, they would not appear to have been unreasonable, unlike the bosses. The full membership meeting took place the following morning, July 26th, and was supposed to be at the union headquarters, not the strike headquarters. But there had also been a false alarm raised that the cops were raiding the strike headquarters, so just to ensure the workers were not trapped, they met elsewhere entirely, Eagles Hall, while unemployed relief workers guarded the strike headquarters. Just as in May, the discussion among the strikers was long and heated, but the strike leadership convinced the rank and file of their reasoning, and they voted to ratify 1,866 to 147 but they did not let anyone outside the building know. Not yet. The deadline was noon. It was hot and stuffy in the hall. They had closed all the windows and locked the doors so as to keep infiltrators and journalists out. At exactly noon, Bill Brown phoned Governor Olson of their decision. They accepted the Haas-Dunnigan proposal. The bosses were caught flat-footed, In their perspective, martial law helped the strikers, not them, so the union's rejection was somewhat a surprise. The bosses had reported to Olson that they, quote, accepted it with reservations, meaning they rejected it. Playing the victim, they declared to Haas and Dunnigan that, quote, we cannot deal with this communist leadership. In their rejection, the Citizens Alliance had the support of the broader layer of the ruling class. Just as they had praised the cops for shooting strikers, the Kiwanis, for example, told them, quote, We hope you will not make the mistake of conceding anything that will make for only temporary settlements of the present difficulty. The Rotary Club wrote, We urge you to agree to no concession, no compromise, that would make temporary rather than permanent industrial peace. And the Lions, We do not feel there should be any compromise with communist propagandists or agitators. The Citizens Alliance said to Olson, quote, 
under threats of martial law, you are attempting to force a settlement which will leave the issue and the methods of the present strike wide open for repetition in the future. We, as citizens of Minneapolis, demand to know whether you will support local authorities with military aid in the discharge of their duty, or support the efforts of the few to lawlessly obstruct the flow of normal traffic in the city, end quote. Olson replied, quote, I do not agree with you that the plea for a living wage by a family man receiving only $12 a week is answered by calling that man a communist. Neither am I willing to join in the approval of the shooting of unarmed citizens in Minneapolis, strikers and bystanders alike, in their backs, in order to carry out the wishes of the Citizens' Alliance of Minneapolis. This organization is controlled and dominated by a small clique of men who hate all organized labor and are determined to crush it. This sinister group repeatedly prevented a settlement of this and the former strike. This group restrained the so-called fruit and produce employers from agreeing on the eve of the present strike to pay helpers, platform men, and inside workers a wage scale of 42.5 cents per hour. I know that many employers in Minneapolis are fair-minded and just, but they are blocked from any group settlement of labor controversies by this clique. End quote. But, as Walker wrote, the capitalists were demonstrating sound class instincts. They recognized they were not dealing with an ordinary union conducting an ordinary strike. But their push for Bloody Friday and their unrepentant adamance was, quote, damn bad strategy. Instead, they were only adding fuel to the fire. But now Governor Olson contributed his own kindling. In the afternoon, he exaggeratively proclaimed that Minneapolis was, quote, in a state of insurrection and deployed 4,000 guardsmen into the streets. Martial law banned all picketing and open-air meetings. Trucks could move only on military permit. Rules that Olson believed were neutral, but were far from it, as we will see. Indeed, he had even told the Citizens' Alliance that government agencies, such as the National Guard, belonged not to them, but quote-unquote to all the people, and would be used to protect all the people in and outside the city, including farmers, desired to do business in the city, end quote. But that Local 574 had accepted the proposal complicated matters for Olson, who now had, in Dobbs's words, to, quote, pretend to square off against the bosses who were defying him. As the organizer noted consistently, Olson's words frequently contradicted his actions. But martial law had already taken effect to some degree. The night before, Minneapolis police had raided the hotel room of James Cannon and Max Schachtman, leaders of the Communist League who were instrumental to the regular publication of the organizer. The hotel rooms were searched without warrant. The city jailed them for 48 hours on charges of vagrancy, which made no sense, they had a hotel room, and then the judge turned them over to the National Guard. The Guard held them for a few hours but released them on the condition that they leave town. Cannon and Schachtman just crossed the river into St. Paul to hide out. Olson backed down a few days later and lifted the restrictions. Cannon remained in Minneapolis, but Schachtman returned to New York City, his editing duties of the organizer taken over by Herbert Solo. These Red Scare tactics presaged what would occur a few days later. Thus, far from calming tensions and restoring order, Olson's deployment of the National Guard only made the strike harder to conduct. But at the same time, the irreconcilable contradictions at the heart of society and the state's role as its enforcer. 
How exactly Local 574 dealt with martial law will be the subject of the next episode as we move into the final act of the 1934 Minneapolis Teamsters Strike. This is 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.